Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have a terrific Farcast lined up for you tonight. We're going to talk, of course, in our three segments about markets, what's going on on Wall Street, and then in Washington, and of course, around the world, I have three wonderful guests. Uh, Kenny Polcari, not with us tonight, but I'm telling you, we've just gone bigger and better. We've got Jim Urio from Chicago. Jim will be right with us here in a minute. Uh, we have uh, Dan Mahaffey and John Kehoe. Uh, Dan's going to talk Washington. I've got a lot on my plate for Washington. We're talking trade with uh, Mr. Kehoe coming up. So lots of things that a lot of other people don't want to talk about when it comes to trade and in Washington and what's going to happen in November. But first, on Wall Street this week, you know, we saw stocks come back a little bit as, it, as we got word at the beginning of the week that that. Uh, Real trade war? Not really a trade war. Don't worry about that. Everything's going to be fine. We can all get along. You could hear the verses of Kumbaya echoing in the background. Everybody getting along and playing nice, nice. Even ZTE. Uh, we, we, we're not even going to worry about you know the pirating, the, the real problems with what's been going on with China. Everybody's just going to say, fine, now maybe we've got some problems with uh, North Korea. Maybe that meeting's not going to happen quite as quickly or smoothly as we thought. And um, stocks backed off a little bit today. Banking stocks did a lot better. We're hearing that uh, we're coming to some more reforms, of course, on Dodd-Frank that will be make it a little bit easier for the banks to operate. Uh, and stocks uh, still traded off a little bit on maybe some of that North Korea news down back below 25,000. But, you know, if our biggest problems are flirting with Dow 25,000, we don't have really big problems. So, Jim Urio coming right on in a second. Remember that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make, that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, first and foremost, take it from far, emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling scared or ebullient, stop, walk around the block, uh, call a friend, phone a friend, good time to phone a friend, call Regis if you want to, but don't do anything with your portfolio. Uh, I, we'll see if my friend Jim Urio agrees. So Jim Urio uh, is, is a very famous, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a graduate from the University of Illinois. Uh, from 1987, he actually has a degree in economics, uh, works on the trading floor of the Chicago Merck, uh, has been there for a long time. This is a guy who absolutely gets the markets as a fellow CNBC contributor with me. Uh, and the guy, when I'm on with this guy, I always say, you know, he's smart, he makes sense, he's articulate. Uh, Jim Urio, welcome to the Farcast. Thank you for having me on, Michael. I appreciate it. Oh, dude, you're great to join us. I really appreciate it. So tell us what you think is going on in the markets right now. We got a little bit of relief uh, coming in here and, and uh, off a couple hundred points today, no crisis. But what are you seeing going on in stocks? You know, the rhetoric today was interesting. Okay, we, we know, I think we know. Do we know? You, you answer me this afterwards. The, the, <laughs> the tariffs that we put on China and the, the saber-rattling that was going on was all in the means of getting a fairer 
trade agreement with them. That looks like it is for sure going to happen. I don't understand what the trepidation is with markets today. Perhaps just we'd gone a little too far too fast and we expended a lot of energy on the breakout from the technical pattern in the S&Ps. I'm not particularly concerned. Now, if you look at the Russell, Russell did make a higher high at an all-time high and then a lower low and closed poorly. If we had weakness tomorrow and the next day in the Russell, I might begin to be concerned. But overall, I think things are fine. I think every story I read, you just mentioned in your uh, in your intro about banking regulations, just while we were on the phone, the House passed a, uh, a, a, a severe rollback of regulations for small and mid-sized banks. These are very good things, only because they're over-regulated. I'm for some regulation. When things are over-regulated, you pull them back, and that's you, know, you point them in the right direction. Well, I think that makes absolute sense. I mean, you, you you took these big regulations, I mean, because everybody was scared witless after after 2008, and you took these rules that were largely designed to keep the whole banking system safe that were really draconian if you applied them to a smaller or mid-sized bank. So, I, to me, this is well, not Michael, some... Michael, they were draconian if you applied them to a big bank as well, well, in my opinion. I think you're being kind, but please. You know, well, I, I do live in Washington. Um, okay, okay, and I'll I, and we are in the glass-enclosed studios here at uh, the Chatter Restaurant, where people have a rather clean shot right at me here. So I have to, I have to be a little bit careful. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, do do I think they overstepped? Yes. And 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 so, Jim, here's the Washington pattern, right? We had a number of laws existing going into 2008 that weren't enforced clearly. In fact, Congress had rolled back the downtick rule on a short scale. So I'm, I'm getting a little wonky here. I've got to stop for a second. Um, uh, when you shorted a stock, uh, you, you, could, uh, you could only do it on a downtick. And, and Congress did, did got rid of some of the rules that, were, that, that protected, uh, I guess, investors uh, and made it easier uh, for stocks to actually be more volatile. So, you know, they, they say, oh, you know, maybe we didn't enforce the regulations. Maybe we got a little lax. But the problem isn't with our rules. The problem is those people on Wall Street. And they're not always wrong about that, of course. But the problem is you people on Wall Street. And what we're going to do now, we're going to fix you guys. Boom. We're going to come up with some new laws and some new regulations. And we're going to keep all the voters home safe from you, from you bastards. So, Amen. They, they made an, Wall Street made an easy target. And when you, when you peel... The, uh, the layers away from the onions. You see that Wall Street and the government were hand-in-hand hand in, in creating that run-up. Now, you mentioned eliminating things like the downtick rule. How about even government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie and Freddie being in the game and for years and years buying up uh, mortgage-backed securities? So when, when this all came crashing down, the banks deserved a lot of blame. The banks got all the blame. Right. And the federal government took none of it. And then they all of a sudden started passing you know, unbelievably strict regulation, and, and it's so beautiful to see some of it coming back. Well, and one of the things that they that they are going to uh, roll back is is a part of the Volcker rule, and this Volcker rule says that banks aren't really allowed to trade in their proprietary account for the bank's account with the bank's capital. They're not allowed to put it at risk 
in, in any way that could impair the, the bank's capital position. And that is all well and good, but this gets specifically into very short-term trading that basically prevented a lot of the smaller banks from even maintaining overnight liquidity and, and money markets and other things. I mean, it was just stupid. So, I mean, Are you suggesting that there's unintended consequences of sweeping regulation? That's, that's ridiculous. Isn't it ridiculous? <laughs> just ridiculous. And Congress disagrees with that. They, they don't think there are any unintended. You know, uh, we have talked before, Jim, you and I, about the unintended consequences of all of the quantitative easing that we've seen for 10 years. I'm not sure that we still see them. Do you? Oh, no, we still see them for sure. And we've seen, as we are getting away from the ultra-low rate period, we're seeing um, ex exposing of the excesses that have been built up. And that's a long way from over. We saw it when we saw those um, volatility funds blow up in uh, early February. Yep. And that's just, that, that just, you know, risk, they pushed risk uh, people further and further out the rest, risk spectrum. They pushed people. They pushed me into a restaurant, for gosh sakes. I own a restaurant. If I was I'm getting, so sorry you know, to hear that. <laughs> no, if, I, if I was getting 8% on my treasuries, I wouldn't own a restaurant. But the, the point <laughs> is, is that people built up risk and there was bad habits that accumulated over the last 10 years. And now we have to see what happens as rates go higher. That's the whole theme of what we're seeing right now is this dramatic and historic pivot from ultra-low rate period with high regulations and high tax burdens and other things that stifle a growing economy to um, lower regulations, lower tax burdens, but unfortunately, we have to see higher rates, too. We need higher rates. It's, a, it's wrong to have rates that low for so long, and that's a long, long conversation. But as this happens, we're going to see some of the excesses that build up. Look at things like uh, you know, zombie companies, bankruptcies that never happened, bankruptcies that should have happened, yep. but these the people were still loaning money uh, because there was nowhere else to put it. Pension funds, Illinois. You know, Illinois borrowed 10-year money at 488 about two weeks ago. Who in the world is still lending money to Illinois, tenure money at 488. To me, that seems quite ridiculous. Yeah. Well, okay. So tell me, I think you've characterized it really well. And, 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 and I, I, I'm sorry that uh, we, uh, they haven't managed to get us back on the uh, same show together in a while, but, uh, but probably because it's, it's a good idea because I agree with you. And that's, that, <laughs> that doesn't make for as good as TV when, when the two guys on agree. They yeah. like it when we fight. But uh, so, I mean, but I agree that the real fight in the market, the real real contest in the market is, is the economic growth in right now sufficient to withstand these uh, increasing interest rates? That's it. That's the whole yeah. question. And, yeah. and the stock market's the barometer. I want. <laughs> I want that answer badly. Do you got it? Yeah. Or are you expecting me to have that answer? I, I, I expect you to have that answer. Okay. I mean, you're so the here, smart here. guest. If I could do it, I could have, you know, wouldn't have you on. I mean, you know. Here's my guess, then. <laughs> I think the answer to that is yes. I think that the I saw these last round of earnings. They were quite good. I've seen economic data. It's pretty good. I hear talk about continuing to roll back regulations, and I'm hoping our good friend, uh, Mr. Kudlow, is a voice of reason about how to come up. I mean, I, I believe in taxes. I know we need to pay taxes, but we also need to find rates, particularly on the corporate level and the capital gains level, that encourage investing the most. And right now, in my opinion, we're over them. Because we, everybody looks and will say, well, you know, the federal tax rate is this, federal tax rate is that. People don't understand. And I understand from having a, I have a small business, I have a medium-sized business, and I'm involved with some big businesses, too. It's not just the federal government regulation and taxes. It's the state, the county, the municipality level. We're, the, 
the, I, I guarantee you, companies in this country are getting squeezed too much. And if we can release that squeeze a little bit, we can unlock our full potential. Okay. We have not done that yet. Taxes uh, 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 and regulatory environment is still too much. Okay, uh, and I am with you, but I think that the cost of money, I think basically the growth can, okay, withstand, but, but not a, a, an endless increase in rates. I mean, there's a limit, right? There's a tipping point rates can reach that will absolutely easily throw us right into recession. And I think you've got to watch that 10-year treasury. You've got to watch that two to 10-year spread. Look for that inversion because we've watched the Fed do this before in history. And and, and I'm, while I say my prayers, um, you know, for my good friend Jay Powell all the time, uh, I really hope he doesn't screw this up because it costs me a lot of money. I mean, basically, very selfishly, you know. Uh, no doubt about it. But what's the right level, particularly on the tenure? You know, we went through 3%. It seemed like it was a psychological level that, that struck some fear in people. Do, do we, if, if we go to 35 now, to me, it seems like from a mathematical standpoint, this is not a huge change. But something changed, and people all of a sudden realized, oh, wow. Rates are really going higher. This isn't a bluff like we've seen in the past. Uh, so at and, what point, where, where on the rates uh, is your canary in the coal mine? What, what, what note will those rates hit? What level are, would, would suggest to you, wow, we've, this, it, well, that, that we've got that an issue? The, the rate... The, the rate that we get there as well. If we get there, if we shoot from 3.1 to 3.4 in the matter of days, I think the market will not take that well at all. But there's another important thing, too, is that rates can go up for two different reasons. Rates can go up because people aren't buying fixed income because there seems to be a lot yeah. better opportunity Supply to somewhere else. Yep. Or they could go up because uh, the Fed's worried about inflation. So far, the latter hasn't happened. I like this nice progression of rates going higher because it reflects the growth. If that continues to happen, I think we can get used to rates, but we have to get used to them at a good pace. Get used to rates at a good pace. Jim Murio, you are the best. We are out of time. Gosh, I hope you'll come back and join us again. This has been terrific. Loved it. Thank you for having me very much. You're awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Urio, my good friend from CNBC for a long time uh, from the Chicago Merck. And please visit Jim's restaurant because uh, he needs the help because we can't get 8% on treasuries anymore. Uh, stick with us. We're going to be right back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by Far Miller and Washington Investment Council. Investment counsel means we work for you. Our advice is tailored to you and to your needs and to reach your investment goals. At Farmiller in Washington, we believe money is hard to make. and We're going to work hard to keep it working for you. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr, and we are broadcasting again, once again, in Washington, D.C. on a little bit of a rainy spring night. We seem to be having a lot of those here in Washington. What a great segment with my friend Jim Urio from the Chicago Merck. Really insightful. Guy's really smart, and he's great on the air, too. Uh, hey, Boris, what a song. Fabulous music there you've got. What is that, Boris? Thank you. This is a very good song. This is uh, Very from, good. This is from the 1960s. Nikita Khrushchev wrote this. Khrushchev wrote this. Yes, it was during his folk phase. Uh, this is called Hey, Comrade Tambourine Man. Hey, Comrade Tambourine Man. I didn't realize that Khrushchev had a folk phase. Yes, for a brief period, and then he decided to plug in and go electric. Ele- ele- Khrushchev, electric. 
I don't know why we do this every week. I just, I just don't know why. Anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're so glad you are, you are with us in spite of the fabulous music renditions of Boris here on the Farcast. Uh, okay, Dan Mahaffey's back. This is great news this week on the Farcast. You remember that Dan is the director of policy at the Center for the Study of, President, of the Presidency and Congress in Washington, D.C. It's a big deal think tank. And he's a really smart guy. You probably remember these the loyal listeners from last week. And we like the letters and notes that you sent about Dan and what he had to say. And for those people uh, who uh, thought that Dan was, you know, a communist and, and, and a huge problem, we, we don't care uh, what you think, really. Uh, we like we, we, we like Dan. Uh, Dan, let's let's be clear about this. Are you a huge communist? Not at all. No. A smaller communist, I, a medium-sized communist? I have not nor ever been a member of the Communist Party. <laughs> You're Perfect. welcome any time. Yeah, there we, we go. We've got room in meetings now, lots of room, it, to be honest. It seems to be good for your resume in this town now. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to hurt. All right. Uh, he has a master's degree in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown University. It's a real school, by the way, Boris. Uh, B.A. in government, minors in history, and Mandarin Chinese. I don't know how they leave you in the think tank. I don't know why they just haven't taken you out to Langley uh, and keep... Well, maybe they have. See, in Washington, we really don't know. They put guys from Langley into think tanks so they can get around a little bit better. Uh, but they wouldn't let you on my show. So. <laughs> Neither confirm nor deny. Uh, perfect. Uh, Dan, tell us about Washington this week. It's been a schizophrenic week in Washington, not unlike any other, but, but still schizophrenic. Farm bills and trade and trying to figure out what's going on with China, without China. And we've got, to, we've got to trade. The, the farm bill failed. And, and what does all of that mean? So the farm bill shows, as, as sure as God made green apples, the Freedom Caucus is going to find a way to embarrass the GOP majority. Uh, going down the pike here. Farm bill, something very easy. Ryan put it forward with several sweeteners for conservatives. Uh, and understanding, too, that the farm bill is also the USDA nutrition assistance. So when conservatives are talking about food stamps, nutrition assistance, uh, putting testing on those things, these were ways that they could move forward on that. They thought they had the sweeteners. This has always worked in Washington, a, a marriage of urban interest and rural farm support subsidies. Uh, and this went down because the Freedom Caucus demanded the vote on immigration come first. So wait, what does immigration have to do with a farm bill? It has nothing to do with the farm bill. So but well, they tell want, me, in why the, in the order the... of the materials coming, the bills coming down the pike in the House, they want to move on a, a Bob Goodlatte's from Virginia's yes. a hardline bill uh, on immigration to get an immigration vote for the Freedom Caucus uh, for where the GOP wants to put its uh, stake in the ground on a hard line on immigration going into the midterms. So basically, unless you do things our way, we're not going to do anything you want to do. Correct. This sounds really like a third grade spat. Something like that or a, uh, you know, we, we've heard Banana Republic or My Way or the Highway or things like that come, come down the uh, come down the uh, the Twitters. Uh, but we see the, you know, this this position on immigration, too, I think, and where the Republican Party uh, is going to be moving on that is really going to isolate a lot of the moderates, the ones from suburban districts, people uh, in Florida and the Sun Belt, where they're growing Hispanic populations. They're going to be in a hard position if there are immigration votes coming up. Is this a bill that should have passed, Farm Bill? Yes, Farm Bill should have passed. Just should have passed. And Paul Ryan, now as Speaker of the House, 
the leader of the majority, basically. I mean, uh, correct. Uh, well, though, with his announcement, somewhat of a lame duck. And the challenge is to where is he? La- is it a lame duck? I think no, it's nobody's co- listening to him yet. Well, already? he's still being seen as the speaker, but he goes out of his way to remind people today that this was not a job that he wanted. He reminded everyone that, look, I'm staying around, but let's not forget, I, I didn't want this job he's to begin pouting. with. To a certain extent. So and McCarthy and Scalise, who are yes. likely to be either the next speaker or minority leader, uh, none of them want to stick their neck out yet on this. Uh, and it's just it's going to be a little bit of a floor sideshow. Okay. And this is all over immigration. Correct. And, and, and what is it that the Freedom Caucus wants in terms of an immigration bill? They want a very hard line on immigration. They, they support Trump on the idea of the wall. Uh, there are some who believe that the Dreamers should be kicked out despite their ties to the country. Uh, there's, it's a very hard do line. They want, do they want the Dreamers gone? To a certain extent. I think there would be some of them, if you even look at the, the furthest right of them, who would be happy with zero immigration to this country. And I, you know, for, for those who are uh, economic and financial experts, I, I look at the country's birth rate and, and our economic growth. You need immigrants. Otherwise You've got to have them. Otherwise, we're Japan with less real estate or Italy with more nukes. <laughs> Italy with more nukes is somehow more concerning than, than Japan with uh, real estate. Okay, let me let me just go. You're talking about something that still sounds political, and I want to talk about it in economic terms. And and uh, John Keogh is here too, and, and weigh in if you like, John. Uh, but uh, uh, we're going to get to John. But John's also a, a, a something of an economist as well. All right, one of the measures for GDP, for the growth of domestic product, if you're going to take a look at that, is the growth in your number of workers, which is also tied to population growth, growth in number of workers plus productivity. Mm. So if you think about that, don't let your eyes glaze over just because I'm talking about economics. Think about that is that we have a bakery and we're making donuts every morning. And think think if I have four people who show up every day to go in and make donuts on four different machines, an economist is going to say, okay, I can produce 400 donuts. Let's, let's just go with that. Four people, four machines, every morning, 400 donuts. If I add, as an economist, a person to that formula, I should have more donuts. If I add a machine, I should have more donuts. If I add both, I should even have a lot more donuts. If I can't add people, if I, don't, if I can't add people or a machine, I don't get more donuts. So in the U.S., fertility rates have been falling. They are as low right now as they have ever been. And the fertility rate, it doesn't mean that people can't get pregnant. People can still get pregnant in the U.S. It means that this is the number of births to women in the U.S. between the ages of 15 years old and 44 years old. And those births are now as low as they have ever been. It's a matter of choice, typically. It happens in... uh, Developed, wealthy societies, people choose uh, to have fewer children. Well, that's fewer workers going in. So where the the natural rate of population growth in the U.S. right now is four-tenths of one percent. The U.S. is growing its population four-tenths of one percent. Think about the workforce growing at four-tenths of one percent. Then we get another three-tenths of one percent over the past few years from immigration. It, uh, It doesn't, we don't parse it out as to whether it's legal or illegal immigration. Do I want legal immigration? Yes, I want legal immigration. Of course I want. But what I need if I'm running that bakery is another worker. I don't care if I'm just running the bakery. 
if I'm just running the bakery, take off your political ears for a minute. I don't care if it's a legal worker or an illegal worker. I just care if the guy can make a donut. See, <laughs> I just care if they can make a donut. So uh, if we start staying, getting tighter on immigration, I don't have more people making more donuts. In fact, I've got fewer people making uh, donuts. I have fewer donuts. And my gross domestic product, the output of goods and services in the U.S., will fall if we overstep in tightening immigration. That's why this is important economically. That's why it's important to stock markets. If I can't make more donuts, and I'm, and that's my, and I'm Dunkin' Donuts, and that's actually my share price that's listed on the exchange, I, I, I mean, I've got a problem. Well, we all have a problem in the U.S. with the economy and markets. So uh, I'm, I'm sorry for the 101 economics lesson there, but, but I think people hear immigration mm. I think they, they, they hear immigration, Dan, and they go, oh, you know, and they immediately start a political rant, but there are economic consequences, aren't there? Correct, and that's why dollars to donuts, there's such a big gap here between... <laughs> How long have you been sitting on that? Oh, I love teed it. up on it, you know, hanging curveball. Uh, why there's such daylight between the Chamber of Commerce pro-business side of the Republican Party and these immigration hardliners. It's a problem. It, it is a problem. Okay. We, jeez, uh, oh, I mean, you know, I, I just stole most all of the Dan Mahaffey time, and it's a shame because he's brilliant and you don't learn as much from me. I want to mention just a few names and get your reaction about these folks who I'm paying close attention to this spring. I'm going to tell you some of the folks I'm paying attention to, and then I want to ask for comment on a couple. I'm looking at Mnuchin, Paul Ryan, Sean Hannity. Do you know that that Fox host has the highest ratings in cable? Uh, and, and that the president actually quotes Hannity uh, these days. Uh, Robert Mueller, we can't forget him. Mike Pompeo, his secretary of state, is on a roll. Jay Powell is still, uh, I think, presiding over a fairy tale sort of economy and system, but it might be coming to an end. I'm keeping an eye on Anthony Kennedy. This guy is, is on the Supreme Court. Pivotal swing vote may resign, right? He's, he's, he's an older man. Uh, and then Nancy Pelosi. She says she's going nowhere. So uh, tell me about, uh, let, let's, let's just go back. I want, I want to hit just three of those really quickly. Um, uh, we talked about uh, Paul Ryan. Sean Hannity. Correct. Influential as all Very influential. Seems that he's constantly on the phone with the president on his, as we now know, unsecured phones. How, how uh, does this happen? Uh, how do I go from Fox TV to being on the phone with the president of the it's United States. It's that uh, the complete Trumpization of right-wing media uh, and the ability for them to to resonate in a way from their, from their encounters at CPAC, uh, the grassroots of the Republican Party, uh, and they're now singing from the same sheet of music. Ladies and gentlemen, I uh, also want to say that uh, I say a prayer for the president of the United States all the time. I hope you do, too. I want Donald Trump to be the very best president this nation has ever had. I hope he rises to new heights and accomplishes the greatest things uh, that any president has ever done. I hope you all do, too. That's what we all should be doing as Americans, right? We really should. Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, I think, is great. I think he's an opportunity for the State Department, as he said, to regain a lot of the swagger. Uh, there's certainly disagreements that could be had on foreign policy. Should but we be swaggering? We need foggy bottom 
to have a voice in the policy process. The idea that when the you State say Department, that, what do you mean for people aren't not in Washington? We're we're all over the world here correct, at the Farcast. Yeah. What does fog, Foggy Bottom mean? Well, the the metonym for the State Department is in the Foggy Bottom neighborhood of the Washington. State Department is in the and, Foggy Bottom and neighborhood. And the uh, the need that uh, for diplomats, the the expertise we lost under Tillerson, but that diplomats have a role uh, to play in the policy debate. That as Secretary Mattis so eloquently said, if we don't have diplomats, then I need more bullets. <laughs> I love it. If we don't have diplomats, I need more bullets. We may need both. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, she's not, she's, she's, nobody likes her, but she's here to stay. No, she seems and, in and, Washington. And, that's what I hear on the Hill, and I can't quite get it. Well, I like, but, but Speaker Pelosi's an absolutely yeah. terrific person. Terrific person. Charming well, as can be. And they're all, it's the ability for her to manage her caucus, the, uh, the fundraising, the chits she's, she's cashed in and carried over the years, uh, and the way that she can inspire loyalty among a wide range of Democrats, even though it's an albatross uh, in every election that they, they hang around the neck of the candidate. Uh, lovely to have cocktails with. I'm not. I don't agree with a lot of her politics. I really don't. We're not. We're not. Uh, we're, we don't see eye to eye. Speaker Pelosi and I. Uh, it doesn't seem to bother her at all. Strangely, <laughs> good politician. Uh, Dan Mahaffey, absolutely fabulous. As we come out of this, I know a lot more about Wall Street. I know a lot more about Washington. Wait till John Kehoe gets here. He's going to tell us what's going on with trade and around the world. And uh, you know, he's got that Australian accent too. It drives the women listeners of the Far View Far Cast here. Yeah. Wild. Uh, stay with us. We're going to be right back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by Far Miller and Washington Investment Council. Investment Council means we work for you. Our advice is tailored to you and to your needs and to reach your investment goals. At Far Miller and Washington, we believe money is hard to make, and we're going to work hard to keep it working for you. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr on a uh, rainy, maybe it's clearing up in Washington, D.C. evening here uh, with a great Farcast this evening. Jim Urio from the Chicago Merck telling us what he thinks about interest rates and the tipping point that really might cause the problems uh, for the for the next correction in the market. I was fascinated to listen to Urio. Uh, Dan Mahaffey, back with us this week. That guy is funny. I like that guy. Boris, he's a good guy. He's and a very good guy. Keo's coming up. And what is this song, Boris? It's a fabulous song. Oh, yes. Well, you know, in your country, you had the, uh, what do you call it, Summer of Love? In my country, the Summer of Love. Yes, 1967, I will I assure you that I read about the Summer <laughs> of Love. Well, in former Soviet Union, and we had... And the nuns made us feel very guilty about even reading about the Summer of Love. Oh, I'm sure. You, I'm sure they did. Yes. In uh, former Soviet Union, we had the afternoon of love, about an hour and a half. And this was one of the hit songs from that time period. It's called If You're Going to Vladivostok, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair. <laughs> Very popular tune with the was kids. Was it popular? Is, yeah, it, well, is it still popular? No, no, it's been crushed. So, it has you been. Know, it's, yes, it's, none of that sentiment anymore. No, no love in the afternoon. <laughs> no, no, uh, well, no, that's, no. That's, that's sad. Unless uh, Mr. Putin says, okay. Then we're all for it. Ah, and we're waiting on... Uh, perfect. Boris, thank you so much for the musical renderings of our friend Boris here on the Farcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as much as I'd like to continue that, <laughs> not at all with Boris, uh, we're going to go on to John Kehoe. John Kehoe, uh, it, you know, uh, is a the U.S. correspondent from the Australian Financial Review uh, 
he's, he's, it's, it's, it's a top Aussie newspaper. He uh, has studied economics. Um, he's done broadcast. He's been on the forecast before. He's absolutely one of our favorites. Bright guy. Got the accent, so the women always call in the show now, and, and they, they say, <laughs> can you have Keo back? Um, ladies, I'm sorry, he's married, but um, uh, we'll send pictures. We could get autographed pictures, <laughs> Boris, of Keo, couldn't we? Yes, of course we can. We'll put him in the forecast calendar, pinup calendar for next year. Yeah, the people don't really seem to want my photograph. Well, I didn't know it was allowed, but <laughs> you, you, we'll, make you, we'll make you Mr. One of the Winter Months where you have to wear a lot of clothes. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Keo we'll put in July, don't you think? There you go. All right. Uh, John, you're nice to put up with our shenanigans. Uh, trade has been on the uh, uh, hot seat uh, uh, this week. Lots of the Senate Banking Committee's been, been meeting. Uh, tell us what, what you think is going on in this, what seemed to be a reversal from Secretary Mnuchin saying mm. we're not having a trade war, we're having a little negotiation, we're all making nice-nice again. I mean, what, what's going on? It, it seems incoherent. Yeah, I'd like to call it a trade ceasefire. I don't think the potential trade war is necessarily over yet. It's a pause. And I think one of the reasons Donald Trump has backed down from having any imminent trade war with China, if he ever wanted one, is the fact that this North Korea summit is bent to be coming up in about three weeks' time. And he is absolutely desperate, the president, to uh, be seen to be having a victory with Kim Jong-un at that summit. And he's got to have China on side. To get any sort of cooperation from North Korea, um, if we believe that they will cooperate, you can't be in a trade war with China at the same time. So I think Trump, for, mo for the moment, is back down. Uh, he's been given some symbolic wins, very vague in detail from China, but promising to buy more agriculture, more uh, energy from the America. Probably a lot of that might have happened anyway, and it's not really addressing the fundamental structural problems in the U.S.-China relationship, and that is basically intellectual property abuse, forced technology transfer, cyber theft, uh, not opening the economy enough to U.S. foreign investment. So there's these big, big, deep issues that this tacit agreement is not really dealing with. Okay, but, but so what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is we've got this meeting with North Korea coming up. Mm. This is how the president thinks he's going to get the Nobel Peace Prize by, mm. by denuking North Korea and I'm, I'm not sure when you listen to certain reports if North Korea didn't accidentally denuke itself. Uh, there was an explosion in that in, in, in part of the, one of their major manufacturing mm. areas, right? Yeah. Okay, so he's got this big meeting coming up. Well, maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But, but he knows, right, uh, he knows that, that when we talk about sanctions— Probably the most significant trading partner with North Korea is China. Mm. And if he can't shut off China, he can't really apply the sanctions. So he's got to be nice to China to keep the sanctions up on North Korea so North Korea will come to the table and negotiate. Have I got that right? Exactly. I mean, China count, accounts for about 90% of North Korea's trade. And, and Trump, unlike past presidents, has actually linked the two. He's linked geopolitics with trade. Now, most presidents negotiate on these issues very separately, but he has actually linked him. And he's on the public record in the past as saying, if China helps with North Korea, then I'll give them a better deal or go soft to them on, tra on the trade stuff that I'm threatening them with. This sounds like a big real estate transaction that yeah. the president's negotiating here with these world powers. It's, a, it's an Not unusual way to negotiate. And I, I mean, a lot of the, um, the China hawks in this town, the people who really want 
uh, America to really take it up to China on the trade front, for, particularly for intellectual property abuse and forced technology transfer, cyber theft, are pretty disappointed with the outcome this week. I know it was good for the stock market in the short term, um, but they don't believe that this, uh, this mini deal that seems to have been entered into, very vague on the details, really addresses some of those big structural issues that the US should be concerned about because this is the really big contest in the 21st century between the US and China, not just for economic supremacy, but also uh, national security. Uh, and technology is such a crucial part of that. And China is actually, you know, Trump has a point and the administration has a point, is ripping off a lot of that unfairly from the United States and not playing fairly. Uh, this deal doesn't really address that. Okay, so that we we really do need to probably take a harder line with China and, and that they have not been playing fairly uh, has, been, has been pretty clear. Mm. How you negotiate a yeah. deal, uh, w- w- you know, with a world economic power, um, we, we, we've all seen how the president uh, is, is approaching that. And he does seem to have the, have the ability to be effective. But if, if, the, if we're really just going through this sort of charade mm. um, where the president says, wait, let's be nice on trade for a while until I get the North Korea thing done, and then we'll go back and clamp back down on the Chinese. I'm thinking, uh, okay, I'm thinking the Chinese might even be bright enough <laughs> uh, I think they might be bright enough to, to see that coming. Yeah, I think the big risk, I think, for Trump is that China and North Korea string him along on these two issues. They make a bit of progress. They're seen to be doing something, but North Korea doesn't denuclearize unilaterally. I think they've virtually ruled that out. And so they sort of do this step-by-step thing, which takes a long time. China does on the trade. And I think their game plan is probably to try and see Trump out, assuming Trump only is a one-term president, and that's not guaranteed, but if they can make through another two and a half years um, and he doesn't get re-elected, they may see if they can make these token gestures and gains without fully uh, denuclearizing in the in North Korea's case or in, in China's case, not really giving too much on the trade issues, uh, they could wait out Trump. Well, and they, and they, they, they uh, maybe... Uh, my Washington insiders, the, the, the political analysts, tell me that they think the president has a, a very clear path to 270 electoral college votes uh, on the next go-round in yeah, the election think, as they look I at that. I think it's plausible he could win again. You'd have to say this, assuming, assuming that Mueller doesn't take him down, if, if the economy's going well and that if the Democrats put up a far left-wing candidate, then Trump's got to be a half a chance of winning again, I would have thought. Uh, there is this uh, a company, this phone company over in China, ZTE, mm. and they've been on the hot seat, sort of in favor, out of favor. We were going to have ser- serious sanctions, and now all of a sudden they uh, were being a little bit nicer to ZTE. Yeah, Trump has signaled that he might ease up on some pretty harsh sanctions the U.S. imposed on ZTE last month. Now, they got a billion-dollar fine. Basically, was, uh, the U.S. is no longer allowed to sell them parts now right for their mobile phones and all their other telecommunications um, products they make the u.s provides about 40 percent of their components so they're a crucial supplier and basically the company is being crippled by these sanctions it's killing a lot of jobs president xi jinping um, asked donald trump recently to review these sanctions and, and basically go a bit softer and trump signaled ahead of these um, china 
Washington uh, trade talks on the weekend that, that he would consider that as part of the broader trade deal. But he's now getting a lot of blowback from um, Congress because this ZTE Corp, it's a serial offender in terms of bribery, um, corruption, including with North Korea and Iran. It's, um, it's evaded sanctions. It's lied to investigators. It has a terrible track record. And now uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress are very worried that Trump might go soft on them. They've actually pursued legislation through the Senate Banking Committee today to basically override or attempt to override uh, any softening in sanctions that Trump might be uh, trying to get through. The Senate Banking Committee did that today. Yeah. Made, uh, had a vote where they, and they sent a letter to the president, didn't they? They did. Uh, more to than, say what? More than 20 senators basically don't back down. Um, keep up these sanctions. This is the rule of law. We can't be sort of trading away these sort of things in, as part of a trade negotiation. And these things always have an effect on the markets. Uh, uh, stocks react to all of these news headlines out of, uh, out of Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill, uh, if we make trade tougher, uh, that, that again is going to affect our GDP. Now, maybe there are issues where we need to draw that line in mm. the sand and say that we're going to do the right thing here. Uh, and trade will have to work itself work itself out. We we've certainly seen with Iran, uh, and as we pull out of that uh, uh, deal, uh, and and as we see uh, moving our embassy into Jerusalem, we've seen the price of oil spike. Mm. So a lot of these political issues that we seem to be taking for political reasons, even if they're the right steps, they have serious economic consequences, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, you know, I think fundamentally are probably earnings and economic growth. Are the big drivers, but you'd have to say the day-to-day movements that we sometimes see, obviously what's coming out of Washington, the White House, is, is having a bearing on the markets as well. What's the hottest topic you're looking at right now in Washington? We've got to finish up here, John, but what are you seeing? What do you think the major issue is next for the economy in Washington? I think it's the U.S. Federal Reserve and interest rates. Do you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not too worried about whether 10-year Treasury is at about 3.1%. But, you know, there's some infant signs that inflation's firming. And I just, the more people I speak to, the more top economists, central bankers around the world, you know, a two percentage point of GDP fiscal stimulus with an unemployment rate at 3.9% yes. historically hasn't ended well. Has not um, ended well. That's led to real inflation, hasn't 1960s, it? early 1970s. People are talking about that period. Now, the central bank is more aware of inflation targeting these days. I'm not suggesting we're going to get uh, double-digit inflation and interest rates, but yeah, history shows that when you have a big fiscal stimulus with uh, full employment, it, it, it's hard to keep a lid on things. The issue for John Keogh, then, is the Federal Reserve uh, building inflation and what they're going to do with interest rates. It goes back to what we were talking about with Urio, is whether the Fed might overstep. They did in 1937, put us in one of the more profound recessions we've ever had. This is the tightrope that we're walking between economic growth, interest rates, uh, and inflation. Uh, they're all tied hand in hand, and we're all standing back holding our breaths collectively. Uh, John Kehoe, uh, thank you so much for being with us again on the Farcast. Great to be with you, Michael. What a wonderful Farcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Please remember, ladies and gentlemen, that if you think you heard us recommend uh, that you buy or sell any sort of security, you didn't. We don't do that on the Farcast. If you're thinking you ought to make a change to your portfolio, your asset allocation, your investment strategy at all, 
uh, based on anything we said, don't. We did not mean to imply anything there. And if you think you should, please check with a financial professional or give us a call at Far Miller and Washington. FarMiller.com uh, is our website. We'd be delighted to help. I've got some really fabulous people, well credentialed with lots of expertise and experience there to help you. Thank you again for joining us. Please tell your friends and please share us on social media. We're looking for listeners on the Farcast. I thank you so much for joining us. It is a, a true pleasure to be able to be with you this time every week. In Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Farr. Have a great day, great evening. Good night.